Why don't you grab your Bible? We are in the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Ezra, chapter 4. Last time in Ezra, we, uh, we watched with maybe a bit of surprise as the nation of Israel rejected help from the natives of the land, so to speak, in help, helping to uh, rebuild the temple that they were sent back by Cyrus to rebuild for the God of Israel. The passage says this, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, quote, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' households of Israel said to them, quote, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Um, I told you last week that as we looked at these three verses, we were going to end up spending a few weeks here because the implications of this passage, the implications, the applications that spring from it are far too great to spend just one week on it and leave it. Also, the, the principle that is taught here is taught throughout the Bible. And if we, uh, if we simply try and gather the full understanding of the principle from this text, I think it's lacking. And so we're going to go New Testament today, and then next week we're going to go Old Testament, and we're going to try and unpack this three, these three verses a little more for you. You remember last time, I'll give you a little bit of a summary of where we've been in these three verses. The first question we had to ask was, who are these would-be partners in ministry, right? I mean, who were these guys that Israel just rejected out of hand with their help? These partners in ministry that were shut out by the fathers of the households of Israel. Well, we saw several things. Number one, the storyteller, the narrator, Ezra himself, gives us a little commentary in verse 1. He says that these guys are enemies. All right, So we get a clue there right from the beginning that these guys weren't on the side of Israel. Their intentions automatically, Ezra tells us, their intentions, they were bad. Their intentions were faulty. We find out as well by their own words that they were exiles much like the Israelites. We also find out from the context of the chapter, if we were to finish chapter 4, and we will, that they were, as one pastor, as I listened to some other sermons on this text, one pastor called these would-be partners in ministry hijackers. Hijackers of the temple, hijackers of Yahweh. And that they would take this ministry, they would take this temple in a direction that it wasn't planning to go. Right? Great analogy. We also talked about last week that they are, in fact, Old Testament Samaritans. Old Testament Samaritans. And I'll explain that more in just a second. And finally, we saw that they, by their own proclamation, were worshipers, quote, worshipers of the same God as Israel. And they said, in fact, we, we are, we're just like you. We're just like you. And that's the phrase we're going to really evaluate today. Were they really, in fact, just like Israel? Were they really, in fact, just like Israel? Individuals, 
who Ezra calls enemies at this point, they were, uh, in some sense, uh, they were partially relics of the lost ten tribes of the northern Israel. That in the exile, they got bred out of their own identity. They got bred out of their own tribes as the ten lost northern tribes of Israel. So, in a sense, they were partially Israel. They were, they were half-brothers to these men who have come back to rebuild God's house. And so you understand how the temptation might be there to accept these half-brothers as brothers indeed. They weren't just uh, racially different. The point of the fact that they are racially different uh, really isn't an emphasis on their race. Okay, now follow me here. They were not just racially different, they were culturally different. And as a result of their racial and cultural tapestries, they were most importantly different than Israel religiously. Did you catch that? They were most importantly different than Israel religiously, or better yet said, spiritually. In short, they were pagan. And not, in fact, worshippers just like Israel. They tried to sell themselves as being just like Israel, but because of the blendings of their culture came a blending of their religions. And their religion was not that of a singular worship of Yahweh. So, why? Let's talk about why their help was, in fact, rejected. Uh, Let me say this in regard to their race. They were not rejected on the grounds of their race. God is not and has never been a respecter of persons. That was not the point. For God, it was never about race, but about the spiritual allegiance of those individuals and of those nations. It was not about their race. It was about their spiritual allegiance to other gods. Plural. This was an eclectic group. Religiously speaking, they had gods and goddesses all worshiping in the same temples. Their gods, their goddesses, shared temples. And their gods and goddesses shared the worship of their subjects. Don't miss that. Their gods and their goddesses shared not only a temple, but they shared the worship necessarily of their subjects. It was an eclectic religious group. The emphasis that they were evangelized them, they would bring them into the fold. They would convert them. And they would become worshipers just like Israel. But not these guys. Now, I'll say here that uh, it may... Well, it is in fact true that... Uh, and we see it come to a uh, fulfillment in the New Testament. And we see that uh, Christ... And uh, the disciples rebuke Israel for the fact that they began to elevate not not their religious uniqueness, but they began to elevate their racial uniqueness. You see, many times Israel missed that very point, that it wasn't about race for God. It wasn't about culture. It was about what it brought religiously, what it mixed in spiritually. 
Israel from time to time missed the point of their call to purity and instead elevated their nationality over and above their spirituality. In the New Testament, we find Israel being rebuked for their rejection of Samaritans. You know these stories well. We don't have to go far. We can go to John 4 where Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and we see how he dealt with a Samaritan woman. He did not reject her based on her race. He did confront her faulty religion. Her race was of no consequence except that it brought false religion, except that it brought error. We could go to Jesus' parable on the Good Samaritan as another illustration of this, that it wasn't about their race. It wasn't about the fact that they were Samaritans. It was the point behind that as the cultures merged, as the races merged, so too did their beliefs. So too did their beliefs. And we get a mix of error In the end, we find that Israel, because of their being nationally focused, we see this over and over in the New Testament, in the end, the light light that they were supposed to be to the nations, the light that they were as a unique people called to be to the nations, that light was taken from them. It was given, given to the Gentile church, Israel was, in a sense, sat on the bench like a second-string quarterback. Excuse me, like a first-string quarterback. Put on the bench, God brings in the church as the backup. And he says, I'll use them now. They would have been happy. Listen, these enemies, these enemies, because of their religious bent, not because of their race, but because of their religious bent, their plans to hijack the worship of one singular God, well, they would have been happy to join in with the work of Israel to rebuild the temple. Why? Not because they were just like Israel, but because they were worshipers of the God of Israel among many others. And just as Satan does often, he, uh, his first plays are subtle plays. His first attempts to distract the church are often subtle. And so you see here, we're just like you. We've been worshiping your God, in fact, while you guys were still gone. Let us join in. Israel got it right at this point. God gave them the wisdom and discernment to see that these would be partners in ministry at other plans. I told you last week, I gave you the quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, that the mind of Satan is that, quote, a moderate religion is as good for us as no religion at all. So Israel recognized that, that this mixed group, culturally, nationally, brought a mixed religion. And it would, in fact, corrupt the spirituality of the nation. And you got to know that Israel had been through this again and again and again, and it's why the temple was destroyed, and it's why they were in captivity for 70 years, and it's why they're having to come back and rebuild. And as we've seen in the first three chapters, it's why they are so, so strict 
on getting it right as best they can. Attempting to be orthodox once again. All right, so let me, let me go another direction here. How did and how does this eclectic type of religion survive? How does it, how does it thrive? Let me give you a little philosophy of ministry here. When you have no absolutes, at least no absolutes worth elevating, when your religion is concocted from the best ideas of men, then you can't be so arrogant as to be elitist. Let me say that again. When your religion is simply the best ideas, the best philosophies of human thinking, you cannot. You cannot elevate it. You cannot separate it as elite. So you and why? And you understand when you do that, the only wise thing to do is to at least humble yourself to say, you know what, my answer may not be the best. It at least cannot elevate itself above another's idea. But because Christianity claims a divine authorship and an absolute truth, it cannot resign itself to be one of many options. Christianity cannot resign itself to be one of many options. God will not be lumped together or thrown into the same temple with other so-called gods. Nor will He allow other idols to reside in His temple. Israel had the wisdom and discernment to recognize that this wouldn't work. It didn't mesh. It was irrational. We have too many absolute claims. We as individuals, we as a local church, and we, we as the church around the world, we need to pray that we have the wisdom and the discernment to know why it is that we have, quote, nothing in common. Israel saw this. We have nothing in common. Why? Because the important things are not the same. We do not worship the one true God alone. All right, so in the particular point of this passage is that we have nothing in common when it comes to spiritual matters, okay? When it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to worship, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to ministry, when it comes to the church, spiritual matters, we have nothing in common, no matter what else we have in common. Everything is negated. All right, so as promised, let's go to the New Testament and take a brief look at Paul. All right, go to 2 Corinthians. All that was your introduction. How about that? Time's almost up. 2 Corinthians, Paul has to deal with much the same scenario. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinth, you know, Corinth was a melting pot of cultures and therefore religion. It's a melting pot of cultures and therefore religion. And so do a group of Christians who are constantly tempted to fall back into idol worship practices both blatantly and subtly. Paul wrote chapter 6 to keep them on track. Would you look at verse 14? Here's Paul's take on the same principle from Ezra chapter 4. He says in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what, as may say, with unbelievers? 
And then following that, we get five phrases to bolster his argument, to, to emphasize his command. Basically, rational arguments to say, to express that we are not like, we have nothing in common. We are not the same, no matter how the enemy tries to work their way in and say they are the same. The difference is, is as stark as righteousness and lawlessness, light and darkness, Christ and Satan, a believer and an unbeliever, the temple of God and idols. It's, it's complete and total and obvious opposites. So the command is, don't be unequally yoked. Rusty, put the uh, picture there. You got it. That's a, a picture of being unequally yoked. Paul had in mind when he, when he wrote this, surely Deuteronomy 22, Israel was commanded not to, be, not to unequally yoke an ox and a donkey in plowing their fields. Very practical commands for the nation of Israel. But that's where this, that's where this idea comes from. It's the idea of putting an ox and a donkey in the same yoke. That's that thing around their necks. It's called a yoke. And expecting them to plow a straight line. And the reasons why they can't do that are obvious. These two animals have two different natures. They don't have the same gait or stride. They don't have the same disposition. They don't have the same strength. They don't have the same kind of instincts. Completely different natures. You can't yoke them and expect them to pull a straight furrow. They're different. As different as light is from darkness, as Satan is from Christ, as righteousness is from lawlessness, they are complete opposites. And the point is, they will not accomplish what you think they can accomplish. They're not going to make it. So what does this mean? Should we become hermits? Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, I told you last week that you have to be thinking Christians here. You've got, to, you've got to unpack the complexities of these principles and you've got to start asking yourself the difficult questions. We as a church have to ask ourselves these difficult questions. I hope you're already, I hope you're already coming to some of them. So what do we do? Does this, mean, does this mean we have no relationship with unbelievers? It's got to be the, the first and obvious all the unbelievers from us. Uh, the thought occurred to me that I, I'd rather us go stay at a monastery because we get, well, we get arrogant when we stay where we are and we think that everyone else needs to, uh, needs to leave. Let me give you some practical examples of how we do this, um, of what questions we might have and what this means. What does it mean, Paul, to not be bound together with unbelievers, not to be unequally yoked? Does that mean we don't, we don't go to school with unbelievers? Does that mean we don't send our kids to school with unbelievers? Does that mean uh, we don't buy a car from a person who's not a Christian? Does this mean we don't invest in mutual funds that are held by non-Christians? Does this mean we don't buy insurance from non-Christians? Does this mean we don't go into business deals? With non-Christians? Does it mean we don't marry non-Christians? Does it mean we don't date non-Christians? Does it mean we don't let our kids play ball on a team that's not full of Christians? Does it mean we don't live in a neighborhood unless there are Christians living around us? Does it mean, and on and on and on, what about, what about, what about this? What about this? 
Do we, uh, do we just build ourselves a Christian compound and separate ourselves? Well, surely, and hopefully you're thinking at this point, no, that's obviously not what Paul's saying here. And the reason we know this is because of the entirety of the Word of God. Uh, as an aside, let me give you a hermeneutical principle. That's just a $10 word that means this is how you read and interpret your Bible is you never read and interpret your Bible on one singular verse alone. You have to consider it in the entire council of Scripture that we've been blessed with. And Corinth, the church at Corinth, had more than this verse from Paul. They had at least two letters from Paul. Can I take you back to 1 Corinthians? I want to tell you, I want to show you what Paul had already taught this nation. He had already given them context And so when they read these words, they know what these words can't mean. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Very familiar words. 9 verse 20, uh, start in verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as under the law, though not being myself under the law, but so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, I became as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became weak. I've become all things to all men. And don't miss, so that I may by all means save some. And he did whatever he needed to do. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You may say, well, uh, maybe I have to still be around unbelievers, but I have to avoid the really bad ones. I've got to avoid the really immoral ones. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the immoral people. And he's going to clarify what that means because they had missed it. They thought that Paul meant that they were to be out of this world, that they were to separate themselves from unbelievers totally and across the board. Here's what he says. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. That's the lost. Or with the covetous or the swindlers. Now, notice how bad it gets here. And these are the people that Paul says, I'm, I'm not telling you to separate from these people. And he's going to give us a list of the worst of the worst right here. The covetous, the swindlers, the idolaters, that would be irrational, he says at the end of verse 10. For then you would have to go out of the world. And God's left us here. Inference, we're in the world, that's why we're here. You can't, you can't depart, you can't separate yourself like that. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It's interesting here. Paul calls this person a so-called brother. Now, don't miss this. One who says, I am a worshiper of Yahweh just like you, but their life doesn't look anything like what the life of the church should look like. You see the parallel? So, 
We're not to separate from the unbelievers completely, totally. What does Paul mean? Maybe there's got to be some limitations here. 1 Corinthians 8, and I'll not, I'll not have you turn there. We're running out of time. 1 Corinthians 8, he gives some limitations. Also in 1 Corinthians 10, he gives some limitations. He says, listen, you be in the world. But he gives some, some very specific instructions that when you, being in the world, starts to conflict with the health of other believers, when you start to cause other believers who have come out of that pagan world, when you start to cause them to stumble, when you start to cause them confusion, he says, hold up, stop what you're doing. Even if you're doing, 1 Corinthians 10, even if your motive is the salvation of that pagan, if you're causing a believer confusion, the church at Corinth knew those passages. They knew the context of what Paul was speaking of here. They knew that in Corinth, the temptation to be involved in the pagan festivals and feasts and to be enmeshed right back into the pagan world, that eclectic, culturally and religious society. And by the way, everything about society in that day was permeated with religion. And in this case, false religion. And so Paul gives a strong warning for those who are living in a society that is... That is permeated with lies. He says, be careful. Be careful specifically, not that you separate yourselves from them completely and totally, but specifically, they're not to be in religious partnerships. They have nothing in common spiritually with these Nations who would say, can't we all just get along? Aren't we all just basically the same? Paul recognizes and encourages the Corinthians just like Ezra 4 teaches the principle that we we're not to be cut off from sinners. We're not to be cut off from sinners. But we are called not to join in worship, teaching, discipleship, evangelism, anything that has to do with the temple of God, etc. Nothing spiritually in common. Why? Because it makes no rational sense. We are not the same. They are not like us. We are not like them, fundamentally. It is like light and dark. It is like putting Christ and Satan together. It does not make a symphony. It's like trying to mesh lawlessness with righteousness. He says, in this area we are completely on different pages. Don't be fooled. Don't be duped into meshing together like all the other cultures have done with their religion. Interesting, one of the chief accusations made of Jesus was what? That he was a friend of sinners. That he was a friend of sinners. All right. I'm going to cut some stuff out here for sake of time. In each case, Ezra and Corinth, God would have been relegated to one of many spiritual offerings, a sort of, sort of spiritual buffet for the people. And Israel knew then, and the church at Corinth knew, and was learning from Paul that they couldn't let that happen. We can only, listen, we, any system, now let me... Listen now, any system of religion that makes use of alternate 
or additional, alternate or additional means to the Father is false and is an outright lie from the Father of lies himself. No matter how similar it might look at the outset, no matter how much they might say we're just like you, no matter how close their heritage is to ours, if it's false, it's false. If there's a lie involved, then the whole thing is corrupt. We cannot mix light and dark. One of them will give way. Light will overtake the dark, or the dark will overtake the light. They, they cannot mix. We must at this point, as individuals, as a local church here, and as the church as a whole, we must be willing to say to Mormons, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Scientologists, Catholics, Hare Krishnas, etc., etc. By the way, I thought Hare Krishnas were only in movies these days. Preston and I went down to the Florida-Hawaii football game in Florida, and there was a sizable group of Hare Krishnas right there outside the stadium doing their thing evangelizing. They're there. We must be willing at this point to say that we have nothing in common because because we've missed on the most important foundational pieces. If we do not agree on a biblical view of who Christ is and what was accomplished on the cross, then nothing else that we may slightly have in common holds any water. Nothing else matters. If we get that wrong, there is no commonality. If we're not in agreement on Christ, there is no commonality. If it's Christ plus or Christ and in any form or fashion, and you can go through your whole list in your mind of every other religion that's out there, if it's if it's Jesus plus anything else, if they even include Jesus, then it's, it's false. It's missed. It's missed. All right. Um, let me tell you why this is so tempting, was so tempting for Israel, was so tempting for Corinth, is so tempting for us. On the surface, um, on the surface and at the outset, uh, all the same, Frankly, it draws a bigger crowd to diversify spiritually. It is more pleasing to the ear to diversify spiritually. Not hold to absolutes, not, not hold to uniquenesses, not hold to Christ alone. And there is no other way. There is no plus. There is no and. It's not as pleasing. One commentator said it like this. It's very much like the modern Christianity of today that seeks to blend Christianity with popular culture, wants to make Christianity more popular, less different, more palatable, less offensive, less narrow, less exclusive. And the result of it is that true Christianity and the purity of God's Word gets corrupted by compromise and the church can become and does become useless, shameful, blasphemous, and in itself mocks the very truth that it was founded upon. Listen, our message, our message 
It is absolute and it is unique. But don't miss that it is not palatable. It's not intended. It's never been promised that it should go down easy. It is a salty gospel. It is divisive. It separates truth from error. And the comfort of the lost cannot be, therefore, our primary concern in respect to the gospel. And that's the whole premise of this temptation to diversify. Let's make more people comfortable. That will attract more people in. More people will be happy. We'll be accomplishing more. But in the process, you lose what is important. You lose what is absolute, what is, in fact, the truth. Uh, In evangelism, you lose urgency and seriousness of the lost world. Let me answer one more question here that I hope is nagging you right about now. And I'll be done after ten more things that I have to say. Uh, you should be asking yourself somewhere in this conversation, in your heart, so what does this mean to the unbeliever in us? Does this mean they're not welcome here? Isn't this a spiritual venture? Are they not to partake in this, what we do here on Sunday morning in particular? Are they not, are they not welcome? Are we separate on that? Has that occurred to you? I hope it has. Okay, number one. And here's what that means. That means that if, and we don't know who's lost or who's not lost, first of all, as they come in. But here's what this means. When someone comes through these doors, the attitude of our people, the attitude of this flock of believers ought to be an attitude of humility for that we were saved by grace ourselves, not not of ourselves. We have nothing to boast over. We welcome those who come in with humble spirits, with smiles on our faces. We do not look down upon them. For we were once in sin just like they were. So we have an attitude of humility for the lost that come and find their way to this place. Our people should be humble and gracious to the lost who find their way. But by virtue of their own sin... And God's absolute and uncompromised holiness and our congregation's exaltation of His holiness. Attending should and must rattle the bones of an unbeliever who sits in these services. Let me put it this way. The lost should be uncomfortable in God's presence, but not ours. We welcome them. But we... We let and we cause nothing to change that would take away that friction that is their sin and God's holiness. That in His presence, they cannot rest. They cannot be at peace. In their sin, they should be very uncomfortable. If they can sit amidst our worship and under our teaching week in and week out comfortably, then our worship and our teaching are obviously and sadly mistaken, misguided, 
misdirected. They just missed, okay? We've just missed. To the lost, we tell the truth. We tell the truth not because we are elite, not because we are uh, better, not because we have been separated because of our own good deeds. To the lost, we tell the truth because somebody told us the truth. To the lost, we tell the hard truth of their sin. We tell it clearly and we tell it directly. We're not so concerned about making them uncomfortable when it comes to the truth of their sin. Just as if we would not be concerned with awakening a sleepwalker. Love for the lost demands of us that we not compromise. Our love for the lost demands of us that we do not shy away, that we do not sugarcoat, that we do not soften the truth, the seriousness, and the immediate need of them to hear that they are indeed sinners. On track for eternal condemnation. Our love for them, our love for them, tells them the truth. And so we, we won't compromise. When those who say, we're all the same, we're just like you, we draw lines in the sand. Why? Because if we don't, three things, don't miss this. If we don't, number one, it desecrates the name of Christ. Number two, it pollutes the Christian. And number three, it gives false assurance to the unbeliever. And that does no good. That does no good. All right. Let's pray.